Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Bailey. He has done so much between Scooby-Doo and Guess Who. We'll talk about that for sure. Out in the Chipmunks, Hocus Pocus, X-Men 2, and so much more. But we were just talking. I had to stop the, stop the conversation and hit record um, because we were talking about uh, one of your mentors. And we were just talking about him. You want to bring him back up? We were talking about Chuck Jones. You know, this was your mentor or, you know, somebody you looked up to as a kid. Um, well, Please go yeah, ahead. Absolutely. Let me back up one second. When uh, I was going to Cal Arts, excuse me, before I went to Cal Arts in high school, I was looking into colleges. And, um, you know, I was never really a fine artist. So mm-hmm. fine art schools didn't quite seem to be a good fit. Wanted to do comic books. Weren't really at that time schools, schools where you could learn to do that and get, uh, get a bachelor's. Uh, but I was watching cartoons after school and this Pepe Le Pew cartoon turn came on uh, by Chuck Jones. It's a little dangerous to say this because he's been canceled recently. But uh, I, was, I, I just thought this is the funniest damn thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> just this guy going after this girl that has no idea how repulsive he is. And literally, as soon as I turned the TV off, I was reading a magazine and it mentioned CalArts and their animation program. I was a junior in high school. Then six months, I was accepted. A year after that, I was at CalArts. And three months later, I actually met Chuck Jones at an animation screening in Beverly Hills. And what's very fun about that is that, so a bunch of our friends, we got in our cars, car pulled down to Beverly Hills to see this uh, screening. I think it was a salute to Mel Blanc. And a bunch of our friends went and our classmates sat in the the uh, like the front and in the center, a few buddies and I, we decided we would sit behind taped off seats because we knew it was going to be a who's who of animators. And one of my best friends at CalArts, Jeff DeGrandis, he's a director as well, director, producer. He um, kept tapping Chuck on the shoulder and asked him if he'd come um, speak out at CalArts. And after speaking with his daughter and Chuck back and forth a few times, Chuck invited him to come out to his house and bring a few friends. I was one of those friends. So within a year and a half, really, of watching this Chuck Jones cartoon, realizing I got to be an animator, I was at Chuck Jones' house. There's, there's two things that I really want to hit on. And one of them, I would have figuratively and literally shit my pants sitting in like, I've got to imagine this dude has an aura, right? But one thing I want to circle back to right before we get into that uh, is not, obviously not you shit in your pants, because that would have been me. I would have been just sitting <laughs> over it, I would have clammed up, um, just seeing, you know, royalty sitting across from me. Um, but what was that cartoon, the Pepe Le Pew cartoon that, that, that sparked that curiosity? Had you had had thoughts about becoming an artist as far as animation? Because you said comic books before, but had you tinkered around with the idea for becoming an artist in animation before then? Or was that thing just set it right off? You know, 
it kind of, it did set it right off. But when I look back, it kind of makes sense. Because I always liked the comic book artists that would animate the character jumping through a panel. He would sort of ghost three or four panels. Yeah. And then there would be like the current panels. So you could see Spider-Man jump onto a lamppost and swing around and land on the cab or something. Mm -hmm. and, and I do remember looking at that stuff and thinking, oh, these two work. Oh, this one doesn't work. And and then some artists would do it and it didn't really make sense. You know, they'd have Hulk pounding on, you know, side view pounding on the wall, but it kind of looked stiff, like the same drawing over and over. Yeah. And other guys could do it. Man, you could really feel them pounding the wall. And I was always curious what that was. So mm -hmm. the artists I liked in comics really knew how to move a figure around. And when animation was really just a way to take my drawings and, you know, bringing them to life. Literally. Yeah. You, you brought up comics and I, I'm pretty sure you could see them in the back, but sure. that's, that's my little, that's just one. My wife, and I say this all the time, me for all the time on this podcast, but you look around my room, I, I try to fill up my room full of stuff that makes me feel like a kid again. You know, I reminisce when I come in here, it puts me into the mindset of talking to, you know, my heroes, the people that, that elicit an emotion out of me at such a young age, or and even as an adult, right? These cartoons, these movies, these comic books, and you said that you had specific comic book artists that you looked up to. Who were some of those artists that you might have had like, man, this guy is great. This guy's not that great. But who were some of the ones you really, really sought after when it came to books? When I first started buying comics, I just kind of missed that Jack Kirby era. Mm -hmm. So he had just left Marvel. And so like John Buscema kind of took yeah. over for Kirby. So actually, let me, let me see if I can take this down off the wall. Okay. Show you real quick. He has uh, one of the best Silver Surfer runs I've ever seen. Oh my God, yeah. And so this is right when he took over. Can you see what these oh, are? Oh, yeah. These are His two art pages is so clean. from Fantastic Four. I think 118. Yeah, 113. Okay. So, but, uh, but I remember picking up this comic that, and, uh, and it, I love monster comics at the time, and it was Ben Grimm turning into the thing. Mm -hmm. And I have a recreation by John Buscema on my wall that was given to me by a friend. And uh, and he's like, it must happen, it must, it must. And it says, <laughs> and now the thing. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And I remember flipping inside it, he was like 10 years old, and I've been burned by comics with great covers and crummy art on the inside a few times. So I was kind of cautious. And then when I saw that it looked just as cool on the inside uh, as it was on the out, I bought it. But I really wasn't a fan then. But mm -hmm. years later, you know, probably within two or three years, I was a hardcore fan. And yeah, John Buscema was a big favorite. Could really draw anything. And Gene Colan, Marie Severin is probably one of my favorite artists of all time. I love Herb Trippi's Hulk. Yeah. You know, it was ridiculously fun. Those are the four that come to mind, like off the top of my head. But I'm sure there's more. Frank Miller later, of course. Oh, Frank Miller is, I loved his, I loved his Daredevil stuff more than I liked. So, so this might sound, what's the word? Um, sacrilegious when you're a Batman fan. Obviously I've got a shit ton of Batman stuff as well as Ninja Turtles. Sure. Like I said, everything back here, like I said, makes me feel like a kid. Um, I just organized my Batman stack on the bookcase over here on the other wall. Oh yeah? All my Batman books are together, so. But, uh, um, I, I loved his Daredevil run more than I loved, like I said, The Dark Knight Returns is one of those books that everybody brings up. It's You got that one, you've got The Watchmen, you've got Swamp Thing by Alan Moore, which is one of my all-time favorites. Oh favorite. my goodness, yeah, for sure. Um, that, that man has a way with 
words that I've never, especially when you come to an inanimate, you know, this guy does not exist. You know, Swamp Thing just can't be real. He probably smells horrible. He's got bad <laughs> breath, you know, it just, but there's something endearing about this character. Um, but, but he kind of changed it from just sort of like a, a dude that, that got plant powers because yeah. he fell into a swamp and just turned it into this, this crazy myth. He gave I mean, him that's brilliant about Alan Moore. Yeah, I mean, he gave him soul. He gave him a purpose. Yeah. It wasn't just him searching. It was this, it was this, as I've gotten older, I've started looking at comics and TV shows and cartoons differently. And when I look at it, it's like this, this sense of loss that Alec Holland had to go through. This, this constant, just like, is, is this me remembering or am I forcing these memories on myself to remember because I was an outsider looking and I was a parasite looking in when this man was losing his life. Did I assume his responsibilities or his memories or was this really mean? I, I love that dichotomy. I don't know if that's the right word. It feels like it is. If not, I'm well, just going to it's, it's, it's Kafkaesque. It's in my cockroach who thinks he was a man or a man that thinks he's a cockroach. Yeah. I'm probably getting that wrong, but I remember that from. Uh, we're just going to, at this point, we're just going to roll with it, Chris, because I think okay. it sounds right. And if you think it sounds right, we're just going to keep going with it. Excellent. Uh, excellent. You know, hey, let me ask you, you, you were talking about how you love Daredevil more than uh, any of Frank's other work. Why is that? What did you love so much about his Daredevil run? Because I have my own thoughts on it, but I want to hear yours. It's probably the Ninja Turtles behind me. Uh, when I found <laughs> out that you know, uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were such Daredevil fans um, and huge Frank Miller fans. And then there was a secret, un, un, Marvel never came out and said, yes, it was because Marvel couldn't do that because they weren't owned by Marvel. The Turtles weren't owned by Marvel. Um, but when they've come out and said that, oh, it was, you know, Matt Murdock jumping in the way and that's what the ooze was that hit the turtles. <laughs> that's the same thing that gave him. I think that's what the 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 connection was, because entered in, into all of this was the turtles. That 90s movie is what got me into looking deeper into animation and comics and pop culture in general. Without that, I don't know where I'd probably be into some horrible just musical films that just have nothing besides just pretentious actors and actors. I, I, I don't like shitting on stuff, but it, I would feel like I'd be <laughs> down that path vice pop culture and comic books if it wasn't right. for the movie. Um, but yeah, so I think that's what it, what it was. So, so I, you love it partially just because of the way Turtles and uh, Daredevil intertwine. Yes, and I, I was such a fan of Daredevil's original costume I thought the yellow, black, and red was so okay. sharp looking because back then you really didn't have super. I, I can't, I can't think of one least. You know, with the exception of Luke Cage, there was nobody that really had yellow, and yellow always popped. I mean, my phone, sure, it's not my favorite color, but it's it's yellow. My first car was a yellow car, so there's something about that color just being drawn right to the, you know, right to the screen, right to the senses. I think that's really what it was was between that costume and obviously the turtle connection down the road. So. Cool. Uh, yeah, but nonetheless, man, uh, man, I don't even know where. Oh, we're, we were just talking about Chuck Jones and we got off on a little bit of tangent. Um, do you still read comics now? Before we get off comics, do you still read comics? You know, I don't read that many. I, I reread things that I have for reference occasionally, but I did just get a couple things uh, in the mail from a guy. There was, um, uh, I helped the guy in Kickstarter last year. He was doing these zombie his name's will penny he was doing these zombie uh zombie glasses with zombies on them and when you put your cold drink in there 
It's like the zombie appears. It was really cool. That's awesome. And he wanted so much money. It was like, I'm a big tiki guy. I like rum drinks. And yeah. And, um, and it was very comic booky, like 50s EC. Loved the whole vibe. So I, I um, uh, sponsored it and got the glasses. And just recently, I was listening to a tiki podcast, um, the Desert Oasis Room, and, and he was a guest. I'm like, wait a minute, Will Penny, why do I know that name? <laughs> and he's talking about his comic, Sex and Monsters. And he's got this whole little brand on the on the internet. He's actually a lawyer by day, and That's uh, awesome. and so I just sent him an email saying, "Hey, you know, I sponsored your thing last year, and I heard you on this uh, this podcast, and I just wanted to tell you how much, uh, you know, uh, I, I enjoyed listening to you as, as much as I enjoyed the glasses last year." Anyway, we got the emailing back and forth, and he sent me a couple comics, and uh, let's see, where are they? Oh yeah, it's great. And one of them was a record. He's got Tiki Surf <laughs> Witches. Dude, that is a dope cover. Isn't that crazy? And then uh, and the Tiki Surf Witches Want Blood right here. But I'll show you some panels. So it can it can get a little naughty. <laughs> it's all right, man. This isn't made for kids. Oh, excellent. And what he, what's cool, it's like super funny and super retro, as you can see. Dude, his artwork for him being a lawyer by day. Oh, he's the writer. There's another guy, oh, Nick. Okay. Um, Nick uh, Polwicko. Pol Pol I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. But what's cool is he's every four pages or so he builds the story to a climax, uh -huh. and then he stops it with the appearance of the zombie, and then he gives you the recipe to make a zombie, and then he'll then he'll build <laughs> the story back up to another climax and use that as a transition for another drink recipe. But it's very funny and. So, so that's the last comic book I read. All right. So before we get off of comics, I want to give you a recommendation. Uh, I have okay. never been a Hulk fan at all. He, he's like Superman in the sense that he is so hard to read because what do you do with somebody that's from a different planet like Superman or somebody that was made by a camera bomb um, when all he does is get angry and he gets stronger? However, there is a comic book and it's about to wrap up here. It's written by Al Ewing. And I can't remember the artist, unfortunately, but it's, it's fantastic. It's called Immortal Hulk. They took a Dr. and Jekyll approach to Hulk and they made him into a monster. And the only reason I bring this up is because um, a couple issues ago, they actually had the thing appear. So, you know, Bruce Banner's going through all of these crazy dis disassociative disorder, identity disorder, whatever it is, DID. Right. Um, so he's got all of these things going on in his head. And they were like, you know what we need? We need the thing to come over here and punch the Hulk in the face. Um, <laughs> and that's what's going to happen. And they, they sit down and they, they have coffee at a diner and the Hulk's all shriveled up. He looks like a zombie. Um, and the thing's just being the thing. He's like, yeah, you remember when you, when you killed me, you know, a few like last year, year before <laughs> last, he was like, I came back to just punch you in the face and just beat the hell out of you. Um, but it is, is a fantastic um, panel. Cause you see, you see Ben Grimm just sitting there and he's across the, across the, the little desk or the little um, table at the diner with the Hulk. It's a fantastic comic. Um, you can get most of the trades now for like 10, 15 bucks. Um, because so was a it a trade or was Immortal Hulk a title and it went on for a while? Oh, it's, it's been on for about almost 50. It's going to conclude with 50 okay. issues. So it's about, it's issue 44. A lot of the earlier issues, I mean, I picked up issue one for less than a hundred bucks because it was just, they were introducing characters um, it was a hot title. It was just, it was hard to get at that point. Um, but get them in trade because it's a, 
considerably cheaper, um, but it's a fantastic comic book. Ooh. Now, to get off our selfless promotion for Marvel, um, right. and back to you, um, you know, when I told you I was going to hit pause and we we're just going to hit record right away, um, you actually had the first movie with that was an animation movie. And I know you said you worked on it very little, but Radigan and Fidget, right, from The Great Mouse Detective, those two characters haunted me from such a <laughs> young age. That was the first time I remember as a kid just being terrified of something that I knew was fake, that I knew somebody created that I knew somebody colored, but I don't know what, <laughs> I, couldn't, I could not shake Radigan's, his demeanor, his, his presence, his, his aura, if that's what you want to call it. It was just a, such a fantastic movie. And I would love to know how you got onto this. We talked briefly about it, but I think it's, it's a really cool story for the listeners to hear as well. Yeah, well, I was, uh, I was recently out of CalArts and I was freelancing around town and uh, I was working for this, um, this, um, unit of Disney special projects unit that was making sport goofy shorts mm -hmm. and I got on with the director really well he's a good friend of mine now and uh and he asked me to come in house so I was working there about six months and Disney decided they were going to close the unit down but they were in in um what do we call it exactly this is the, the g or pg rated version they were trying to finish the movie so they were really in in a deep uh, deep pile and so uh, they asked any, They asked us if we would come help finish the movie. Mm -hmm. So I think I was not good enough to get hired right off the street, but I was good enough to come in <laughs> and help finish the movie. And uh, I was lucky enough to work for Glenn Keane. I worked in his unit, so learned a lot from him. But the benefit of that is I got to work on some really great scenes during the climax, mostly just little takes. Mm -hmm. Radigan's big take before he smashes into Big Ben, uh, scene where Radigan throws fidget off his little dirigible and you see him sort of flutter like a wounded sparrow. Uh, he splashes into the water with the Thames, I think. And um, there's a handful of others. I can remember doing a little take of Radigan and kind of remember animating it. I mean, that goes back a long time. That's like 30 years. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned Radigan and how he, he scared you. I mean, that's Vincent Price. So here I was like 20 odd years old and I'm, you know, with all these like giants at Disney feature animation and really in retrospect they were, weren't much older than me but uh I remember one day seeing Vincent Price walk down the hallway I'm like that's Vincent Price <laughs> I, all I could do was look at him I would, was too terrified to ever go up and say hi or anything but I was just aghast this kid from Portland Oregon like that's Vincent Price right over there that is first off uh do you still live in Portland no, no, I, I live north of LA. Okay, that's right. We talked about that. I'm sorry. Uh, that's all right. Because, you know, I still work for the studios. So, and uh, before COVID, you know, we were required to actually go into the office occasionally. I mean, it's, it's I was stationed in Bremerton, Washington um, for a, roughly a year before we deployed. That was my first duty station. My favorite state I have ever lived in was Washington State. And we came out of the dry docks with our boat. And it was, when you go into the dry docks, you go in there to get your boat fixed, right? Wait, what, uh, what, what branch of the service were you in? I was a Navy guy, sadly. Um, oh, no, so it was my dad. That's awesome. Oh, okay. Do you remember what his rate was or what he did? Gosh, he, he just said he was a decade, whatever that is. Okay, so he, <laughs> yeah, he was probably, you know, he's probably a bosun's mate. Uh, those yeah, yeah, that sounds right. 
Okay. Yeah. Those were, uh, we, we would call them salty. Uh, it was a term of endearment. It meant like they had, um, like they were a veteran of, of, of the Navy. Like you look at him, you're like, Oh man, this guy's salty. He's been, he's deployed. He's, he's oh, seen, okay. that was the, that was the, um, the rate is what they call them, the jobs and stuff. That was the rate you never really wanted to mess with because they were always outside when it was hot as hell. They were always painting. They were always covered in salt. They were always pissed off, right? So um, <laughs> that, that was the rate you never. Well, really that explains a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we came out of the dry dock. And you shouldn't say that. My dad's like Popeye. He laughs easily. Yeah. But, uh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I thought that was an awful cheap shot. Dad. <laughs> I enjoy that, man. But, uh, but yeah, so we, we come out of the dry docks and you're supposed to have your boat completely fixed, but needless to say, it was not fixed. We had to go back in the dry docks, but these things are scheduled so far out that as soon as you go out, another ship is coming in because they've got these timetables on when you deploy and all this other stuff. So our boat is still broke. So they had to tug us down to Portland, Oregon. And this is the first time I'd ever been to Portland, Oregon. Um, I don't know if, if they had them when you were there, when the last time you were there was, but uh, this is the first time I got to eat at Voodoo Donuts, fantastic <laughs> donuts. And I also got to eat, and I, like I said, I don't know how new this place is, um, but it was during the, I think it was the Rose Festival or the Rose Garden, so, something along those lines. Sure, Rose Festival. festival. Yes. Um, and I got to eat at this pizza place. It's called Pizza Schmitza. You ever heard of a place, that place? No, no, I haven't been there in a while man, the pizza, it's, it's amazing. Um, but nonetheless, I got to see Portland, Oregon. I got to see Seattle, Washington. I would love to move back to the Pacific Northwest. It's the, some of the prettiest things I've ever seen. And the Goonies was shot there too. So not in Portland <laughs> specifically, but you know. Yeah, Cannon Beach. Yeah. So um, just a great place. Uh, I really enjoy, like I said, where you were born at, uh, Chris. Um, but nonetheless, man, so we, get in, we got into Radigan and Fidget. And then we were talking about how you were just stunned with Vincent Price just seeing him I mean was that the I don't want to say it was probably the last time you were shell-shocked or stunned to see somebody like that but was there anybody else that really stuck out on that cast that you were like holy shit that's uh insert name here you know I've actually never lost that mm -hmm. um because with with Scooby-Doo recently you know my pitch was to do a, a new contemporary version of the Scooby-Doo movies where they ran into some celebrity guest mm -hmm. stars and, uh, and so I just got to work with some phenomenal people. But uh, the first time that I actually met somebody that was just a giant, uh, it was Robin Williams. Oh. And he was, I was directing a pre-show for the Cir uh, Circle Vision in Paris show in Disneyland. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so I, I had to talk to him. We were doing a run through of the script. And I was, and he asked me a question about it. Is this a rap? Is this a song? Is this, you know? And I remember talking and, and being very happy that words came out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that was, and everyone else, words have come out okay. I don't know how coherent they were, but but man, that was something about Robin Williams. And he couldn't have been nicer, you know. Yeah. He was there with Rhea Perlman, and um, but um, I don't know. That was like looking at a giant for sure. He's my all-time all favorite actor. Was him, Robin Williams, and Mrs. Doubtfire made me want to be even though I didn't go down this path because I really didn't know how to ask you know my my parents my mom specifically like you're a eight nine-year-old boy in the 90s and you're like hey mom I would like makeup because I want to make movie magic like Robin Williams right. did in Mrs. Doubtfire so I never really pursued that dream um, but him alone like just if you want to talk about presence 
him being on screen. I mean, I don't have to tell you, you got to talk to him. I'm super jealous uh, there, Chris. So um, just a fantastic guy. And I know that almost everything he did was ad lib. He didn't really follow a script. He just, he had bullet points and then he would hit them and then he would just go few and far or he would go above and beyond is what I meant to say. Well, he would do the script. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, then th as he would do it, he would just start Im improving, mm -hmm. and he would just kind of keep changing it and, and being creative with it um, until at the end. Yeah, it was pretty much his interpretation of what the original script mm -hmm. was. And you probably heard this story because it's been reprinted a lot, but in Aladdin where he plays the, um, the, um, Genie. Uh, the market guy. No, the market guy. Remember, okay. he, was, he was the guy at the beginning telling the story. Oh, yes. He was yes, like yes. a salesman in the market. He yeah. was a genie, of course, and that was brilliant. But what they did was, is they had a table full of just stuff and it was covered with a sheet. And before he recorded, they pulled the sheet off and they just revealed stuff. It was like, you know, an egg beater and, uh, you know, some crazy cooking thing or a goopy pen. And he would just go from thing to thing and do a, do a little riff on it. And again, I wasn't at the, I didn't work on Aladdin, unfortunately, it was one of my favorite Disney movies. Um, but uh, it was described as the first time they cut the movie together, they cut Robin's performance of the script. And then they cut a little out and they put in a little more of his improv. Then they cut a little more out of the original script and put in a little more improv. Till eventually all that's left is Robin's improv. It's, it's <laughs> I have no idea if that's true, but it sounds about right. Like I said, I can't remember what we were talking about earlier when I said we're just going to roll with it. We're going to roll with that because that, like I said, that guy is my hero when it comes to actors. Um, just he, he, ins he inspired and just sparked an imagination within me. Just seeing him on a screen, it's still sad as hell when you think about how his life ended. I mean, I wish if there was a, a time machine. I wish if Doc Brown could come back and just change anything. That's one thing that we yeah. could do. Um, but going back to Scooby-Doo, man, because like I said, I told you a story, but I won't repeat it here because I don't want to get hit. <laughs> on the light later. Um, but uh, Scooby-Doo was so huge for me at, at so many different um, periods of my life. And to see that it came back is that that guest starring type of show, which I got introduced. I didn't see Scooby-Doo, the original two seasons. I got to see it. I think my first one was either Scooby-Doo meets the Addams Family or Scooby-Doo meets um, the, uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. Sure, um, that's the one everybody remembers for some yeah. reason. Yeah, you know, it, it's those those two. It's like the Adams Family, I think, is like I said, it's 1A, 1B type of thing is those two shows that I remember the most. Um, but how did this one come about? I mean, were you just an artist that came on board? Were you trying to pitch this show or how did you get on board? Well, I was always, I'd always, I'd pitched a few things at Warner Brothers before, but I'd never worked there. And I was working on a project that got stalled as many things do in Hollywood. And I emailed one of the executives and said, hey, I'm on this project. It looks like it's stalled. I don't know if it's for two weeks or forever, but you know, I'm available. We always talked about doing you know, some kind of cartoony superhero-y thing. Maybe now's the time. So then I got referred to another development executive from the senior exec. And he had this project that actually fit that bill to a T. And I developed it, brought in a writer, we got it to script, did a bunch of artwork, and then it didn't go anywhere. Again, that just is sort of the nature of Hollywood. But he said, the executive said, well, what do you think about Scooby-Doo? I said, hmm. He said, I don't know. I said, I, I, I watched it when I was a kid, you know, when the first two years it was on, first two or three years. But then, um, you know, I got interested in sort of 
you know, real science fiction and horror, I kind of left it behind and I haven't really thought about it. Um, and I said, but I'm not saying no, let me just think about it. And he said, okay, well, the only thing is we want original costumes. Mm -hmm. He said, just, and I said, okay, great. So I went back and I thought just like you, well, the things that stick out were the Scooby-Doo movies when they met the yeah. Harlem Globetrotters. The weirdest one is when they met Laurel and Hardy when Laurel and Hardy were actually <laughs> dead at that point. But, and then a bunch of celebrities as a kid that I didn't even know. And then Sonny and Cher and- and Batman and Robin. And so yeah, Batman and Robin, you know? So I'm thinking, oh my God, I could pitch, maybe I could actually draw Batman. I could have Batman meet me <laughs> and get the cool Batman to, to meet them instead of like the dorky Scooby-Doo Batman from the 60s. Um, but so I came back with a pitch and I, I pretty much pitched that. I said, look, let's do a version of the original Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo movies. Let's do a mix of cartoon guest stars and celebrity guest stars. And um, uh, the one thing I like to do, though, because you want to go retro, let's go totally retro and not apologize for it. I said, when, Sco when Shaggy and Scooby do a take, let's just do the same take every time. When they run down the hallway, let's make the hallway as long as it needs to be to fill the scene. And we'll have the same plant going by in the foreground and the same painting in the background and just embrace that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, great. Um, and then, um, then they hooked me up with the story editor, Mike Ryan. We became really good partners and he loves Scooby-Doo more than any adult man should, as, as he puts it. <laughs> And, uh, and so we just started making this, making this thing. And, uh, but that was the, we were talking about celebrity close encounters and all that. You know, this was just a real fun for me because you know, we would just sit around a room and say, well, who should we go out to? And then, uh, then when, when we had a list and we'd go to our executive and when he had a list and he'd go to his executive and then they would just, you know, agents would start going out to different uh, celebrities. And then we, as soon as they'd say yes, our writer would, uh, just Mike would just start writing the scripts as fast as he could or working with his writing team. Now, was there any guest that you really, really wanted that you didn't get? Yeah, but I can't say that. Yeah, there were a few for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the most fun though, and I'm only mentioning it, uh, excuse me, and my phone's just... spam. All right, so spam calls many times a day. I'm sick of hearing about her. Um, so the... Oh, what was I going to say? So, uh, was it Batman? Was it stupid phone call derailed me? Oh, we were um, talking about guests that you, you you wanted, but you couldn't get. And then you said- Oh, that's right. Well, recently, this is going to sound crazy, but um, Rolling Stone magazine called me up because we had uh, Axl Rose as a guest star. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess, and he was wonderful. It was really great to meet him and, you know, welcome to the jungle and all that. I'm a big Axl Rose fan. and. It was actually suggested by one of my directors, Mike Milo, that we, we go out to him and he said, yes. But I guess in the music world, because he hasn't recorded a song in seven years, and he doesn't do interviews, mm -hmm. he's like the Howard Hughes. So the fact that I had this close encounter Axl Rose sighting was, was a really big deal to them. And I ended up doing a really nice interview. But he was super fun, you know, um, in terms of, you know, actors, like Whoopi Goldberg was great. Because um, we, you know, have that Star Trek connection, and mm -hmm. I actually animated a couple scenes of her as the Jackal and Lion King. And so when I got her on the phone, because she was in New York because of her TV show, I said, "You know, we've worked together, and you don't know it." And she's like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> and I told her about Lion King, and that kind of broke the ice. And we talked about cartoons, and 
and then um, and Star Trek, and you know, I'm a big Star Trek nerd, and so is she. And um, so, I guess what impressed me most about her, and Eric, everyone was great that I worked with and super nice, but I just could tell that she's one of those people that wants to know who it is on the other end of the phone. And she gave me great advice for directing, how she likes to work as an actor. Um, and, uh, you know, to, she, she liked to, because um, uh, I always ask, you know, the actors, how would you like to work? And would you like me to do the voice? Would you like me to read with you or not read with you or do the voices or not read with you or do the voices or not do the voices? And, uh, uh, and she said, you know, what I'd like to do, I'd like to just go through it a couple of times. Let me just, you know, do my thing. And then if you have any, any, uh, any notes, we can jump back into it. And uh, it's, it was great for me. And I realized she just needed to find the material. She would just kind of go through it and yeah. sort of figure out how it sort of felt comfortable for her. And then there are a few things we went back and, you know, where I said, oh, the room is a little bigger than that. You're shouting over about, you know, 50 foot distance. So we need a little louder, something like that. But, um, but that was probably, you know, one of the, the best experiences. I can only imagine because for the longest time, I knew her from Ciceract. That was one of my mom's favorite movies. I remember seeing that one so many times as a little kid and just remembering, man, this will be good. And then you, you, you start hearing yeah. as you get older. Yeah, you start, as you get older, you start like, I can sit here and if, if my brain worked for math and science and all this other stuff, I'd be a millionaire, Chris, but it works for movie <laughs> quotes and it works for cartoons, right? And it works for voices. I can sit there and be like, oh shit, that's Rob Paulson or, oh, that's Whoopi Goldberg or insert name here. It's, it's kind of crazy how your brain really works and what you latch onto and what you like. Sure. You like. Um, but one thing that, that I, I really liked hearing that is that when you were taking, a, when you were doing the directing approach, you would sit down with these actors and actresses and like, you'd work it through just to see what fit best for you and what best fit for the actors. So you could get the best product from the people that you were working with. Was that something that you would, you would thought about, you know, extensively, or is that something that you might've picked up from somebody? Or is that just something you were like, I mean, we're just going to see how this person likes to do it. Well, I, you know, I, I guess you kind of learn over time and learn by doing working with other people. Cause I went to school to be a cartoonist, you know, not mm -hmm. to be a director and, and not to be an actor. Um, so I started directing and I'd always prepare, but you know, sometimes I could tell it went better than others. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, I don't get it. I'm doing the same thing. What am I not doing right? And I had the opportunity uh, to go to, to dinner with Jonathan Smith, you know, Dr. Right. Smith from Lost in Space. And he was in Bug, uh, Bugs Life. And it turns out we had common friends. And I was like, and I was, and I was asked, would you like to come to dinner with us? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So, so here I am at dinner with, with Jonathan. He was wonderful. You know, he was just what you'd imagine he would be. And, and I felt like he was kind of safe to ask him this question because he was a little bit outside my circle. And I told him, I said, I went to school. I didn't go to school to be a director. And, and uh, I said, so I, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, and luckily everyone's patient with me. But uh, I said, what do you need? What do you want from a director? And he said, really, he says, all I need to know is what my character wants and how they feel about those around them. Yeah. So imagine two people are dancing and they're talking about dinner or mm -hmm. the kids and you tell someone you want to stab them. Mm -hmm. That's going to influence everything 
that actor says yeah. and the little mannerisms they do. But if you say you want to kiss them, mm -hmm. then it's going to be completely different. So falling back onto that, what does your character want? If I ever I feel like I've gone off track, I'll just say, well, here's what you want. Mm -hmm. And then the actors, they all know what to do with that. I got to imagine it's a very refreshing approach because you, you, in any line of work, <clears throat> excuse me, in any line of work, you've got that person that just likes to micromanage and that person just like, look, man, uh, here's this, this is and uh, end result. This is what I want. How you get to that conclusion is completely up to you. If you got a better way of doing it, quicker way, easier way, if it works for you and it doesn't work for me, but we still get the same result, go for it. And I always like, and I always think that people work harder or enjoy working more when it, when you have that character or when you have that person you're working for, it's like, just do you do what you need to do. I'm going to give you as little input as possible. If we go too far in one direction, I'll have to ring it back in because obviously that's my job. But like I said, I always feel like you get a better product at the end of the day. When you, when you let the people that you hired do the job that they're supposed to do. Um, I mean, at least that's, no, I think that's right. Cause if you, and, and not that I haven't like accidentally strayed into that territory too, or that lane, but um, whenever I felt like if an actor's been getting frustrated and I'm not getting what I'm, I'm hearing in my head or what I was expecting, if I back up and say, look, I don't know, let me pitch the scene to you and you tell me, you know, let's, um, I'm gonna say this badly too, but I think that's what I'm saying is if when I back up from the scene and engage the actors like a partner, here's what I'm trying to say. Maybe yeah. it's the line, maybe it's maybe I'm I'm steering you wrong with my direction, but this is the this is what the scene's about. Not even what your character's about. Here's what the scene's about. Do you know, nine times out of ten, they have an idea on it. Yeah. I mean it, it, it goes to make this to... stuff work. I'm so good. Oh yeah, I mean it just goes down to conversing and not confronting people. You know, talk with people that way because y'all want the same. Nobody wants to make something bad. I don't care what anybody says. The, the sure. end of the day, nobody wants to put their name on something that everybody should be like, man, that sucked. Everybody wants, at least in my opinion, or the people that I try to surround myself with, we all want the same thing. We all want to be good at what we do. We all want to have some kind of whether it's a clap or a salute or whatever it is, we all at the end of the day want the same adulations that everybody else wants. We all want to be appreciated for what we do and we want to do something good. We don't want to do something bad. So when you sit there and you talk with them by saying, no, 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 this is what I want. And when you open those lines of communication, I feel like people become a little bit uh, like it's easier to talk to you or it's like, oh man, he's not just telling me you know, what he wants. He's asking me, or we're working through this as a team as it should be. And I think yeah. that's a fantastic way to really lead people. So, um, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, shit, man, we went off on a little tangent there and I was, I was sitting there talking way more than I should have at that point. I do that all the time. <laughs> well, my, my wife will sit there and tell me, she's like, man, you talk a lot. And I was like, yeah, I guess I really do. And I used to say like, all my, cause my kid would come home and then it was just a mile a minute whenever he would come home and we'd see each other, he'd have to tell you his entire day in 35 seconds. And I would look <laughs> at him and like, man, you said more in 35 seconds. And I said all day. And the roles have kind of reversed trying to get stuff out of 11 year old. Now it's like, Hey man, I remember when you used to sit on my lap and we'd talk and talk and talk and talk. Now it just feels like I'm the one talking. Okay, so. but now there are going to be times when he starts talking that you can't let him stop. Because if you say, hang on for a minute and then come finish what you're doing and come back 10 minutes later, it's going to be gone. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting time because we are, 
roughly two and a half months away from our second child. And like I said, I have 11 year old. Oh my God, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm really looking forward to it because I missed a lot with him uh, with deployments and stuff like that. So I missed sure. you know, his words, first steps, that type of stuff. So it's going to be interesting because like I said, 11 years is just three people. I mean, I've got four dogs and a cat, you know, so yeah. that's different than having another person. But when you're a, a family unit of three, and then you've got somebody else coming into the fold. You're like, man, I wonder how this is going to get, is this like a muscle memory type of thing? Will I just like jump? Oh, this is how you change a diaper. Or is this going to be like doing it all over again? Am I going to, you know, I don't know if that makes you know, sense. You'll, you'll, no, you'll definitely be better from the experience, but, um, but your kids are going to be different. And what's funny is that uh, my kids are both grown now and they're both coincidentally in animation. Um, oh, that's my awesome. Son is, my son, yeah, my son is a storyboard artist and my daughter's in uh, management at Nickelodeon. But, uh, um, but you know, it's funny that, that you know, because I'm with Brittany, I remember I, I changed her more and I remember my ex-wife fed her more. And then Kevin, I just remember feeding him all the time. I changed him less. I remember Brittany growing up when she was little. I'd always have to, you know, Give her the little nudge. No, you got to do this now. No, get up off the couch. And Kevin, I'd have to be, hey, buddy, it's okay if you strike out every time or put that book away. You know, I don't, he was a higher <laughs> achiever. So I felt I was always doing a push me, pull you thing with the kids in different ways. Um, but uh, but in terms of like the muscle memory of all that stuff, now nah, the dad thing, the dad gene kicks in. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I'm really looking forward to it because it, it's it's like I said, it's weird, but it, it's like, it's not like we didn't plan for it. Cause when you don't use protection, it's like, it's a roll of the dice every time. So you're just like, oh man, we're going to have a kid. And it's, it's just weird that it happened 11 years after the, after we had our first one. Sure. Uh, so like I said, nonetheless, I'm getting, and all of this, the only reason I bring this up is because I get to introduce and hopefully scare the shit out of my new son that's coming in a couple months with Radigan and Fidget. Like I was thinking <laughs> of back in the day. So it's a circle, man. We're going to be talking, hopefully 20 excellent, years excellent. down the road, my son will be talking to your son and interviewing him just like I'm interviewing. Now. It's like the circle of life to bring it back to life. <laughs> um, but as we, as we not start to wind down, cause I have kept you on here for about 45 minutes now at this point, um, there are a few titles that I really, really wanted to talk about. And sure. Hocus Pocus was one of them. This is a movie we watch every single Halloween. Um, and looking into when I go and do the research, obviously, you know, I'll hit Wikipedia. I'll, if you guys have a website, I hit your website. Um, IMDb is a, a facet of knowledge. However, I've noticed that a lot of stuff on IMDb is just like Wikipedia. Anybody can update it and anybody can change it. And as I told you before, I made that mistake with one person. I won't name him. Um, nice guy up until I just said the wrong title. Uh, <laughs> and then it kind of, kind of went I'll down do that. after that. Um, but nonetheless, I would love to know more about your involvement with Hocus Pocus. Well, before I got that first job at Disney, I mentioned I was freelancing around. Mm -hmm. And one of those jobs was I, I learned to do computer graphics. Mm -hmm. So I did some, like an early Spider-Man for the Marvel Productions logo and Golden Graham's commercial and Mick Jagger video. So when I went to Disney, when, then I would, so I knew that. I was at Disney on Great Mouse Detective. I left Disney to go back to computer graphics, then came back for Oliver and Company. Mm -hmm. So I was there and uh, Hocus Pocus was in production and they were having trouble with their animated cat. So they, the producers came over to feature animation and said, 
here, what do we do? We need to fix our cat. And because Peter Schneider, the head of the department, knew I had CG experience, he said, talk to Chris Bailey. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, they, I talked to them and they showed me the work and it was, it was promising, but it, they clearly didn't have the, the supervision they needed to pull it off or they didn't, it, the stuff was so raw. They didn't know what was a great approach and maybe wasn't done particularly well and what was done well, but maybe not the best approach. And, and I gave them my two cents and they said, okay, supervise a test. Mm-hmm. So I supervised a test and all these different approaches. And we picked one with rhythm and hues where we would shoot the real cat and uh, digitally remove its head, put a new CG head on it, and then put a CG sock and blend it in with the black cat. And that was literally it. I was at feature animation. I got a call here, come to look, look at this live action movie, look at the visual effects, ask us, you know, tell us what you think we should do. And they liked me and hired me and, and <laughs> supervising the visual effects on the movie. And I shot a couple scenes second unit and was on set every day. And it was this really great experience. It is like when I, when, you were one of the most humble people I've ever met in my life right off the bat. If I was sitting behind Chuck Jones and I got invited to his house, I would tell everybody, I walk into 7-Eleven, guess what? I sat down with Chuck Jones. You don't know who Chuck Jones is, but you know exactly who Chuck Jones is. And I went out <laughs> to dinner. And then I did this and then I did that. And then I got to mess with Zachary Binks. I was the reason that he worked <laughs> so well. I mean, it's like I said, there are so many paths that all led me to talking to you today. I mean, b- between all these characters and all these shows you worked on. I mean, do you ever just sit back and you're like, God damn, I've done a lot of stuff that a lot of people like. And are you well, just it ever com- like, it comes, well, I don't really think about it in those terms, but occasionally it comes up mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, I'll get a, an email from somebody that, you know, I looked at their work years ago and now they're a professional and they'll say something nice to me or, yeah. or something from somebody in high school. But, um, but you know, what's funny. This, I recently uh, was talking with this one guy at, at a studio and turns out he was best friends with another friend of mine that lives in Philly and he's had a career um, uh, as varied as mine or, or almost as varied. He started out as a 2D guy, but he's done all this 3D stuff, worked on Robot Chicken and all that. And uh, I said, man, I said, you've done a lot of stuff. How did, how did, how did that come about? Um, people asked me that question. I figured it was fair to turn it on somebody else. And he said, nah, just follow the work. I'm like, oh my God, I think that's what I've done. Because in the beginning, when I started in animation, it wasn't like today. Like yeah. Disney made a movie every four years and, you know, some occasionally there would be something interesting like, you know, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, the video games and, and commercials, occasional special. So I was just trying to do anything I could to, to stay employed. So I learned CGI when I got the opportunity. Then it was, hey, want to work on this live action film doing visual effects? Sure. You know, <laughs> and it would be this great experience. So I think just being open to, uh, uh, you know, new things and, and, you know, realizing that it is actually possible for an artist to starve, that uh, I, I just, I followed the work and that led me to, gosh, theme park films. And, you know, I did, I actually worked on Space Ace and Dragons Are Two for Don Bluth and um, the Despicable Me ride. Um, I've been know, on that ride. ride. That ride is what? fun as hell. I've been on that, uh, the Minions ride. It is a fun, 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 fun ride. Yeah, thanks for that. That was that was great. Um, Real Effects did the animation for that, so I worked with them 
uh, pretty closely. And, uh, you know, those characters are so great. And, uh, and again, I love theme parks. I love motion rides. I, I really love all this stuff. 3D, visual yeah. effects, monsters, comics. So, and I think that's sort of my, my um, uh, I don't know if there's an op opposite of kryptonite, but uh, <laughs> if, whatever the opposite of kryptonite is, what makes you stronger? I don't know, spinach, Popeye and spinach. My uh, spinach would be really that I can pretty much get interested and excited about whatever I'm working on. I can find something in there to, uh, to wrap my head around. But not that it's hard with the Despicable Me characters, of course, but, um, but 3D, it doesn't matter to me if it's a film or a short or a TV show. You know, uh, on one hand, I think I'm sort of hard to peg mm -hmm. in my career because I, well, what, what does Chris do exactly? But really it's about, you know, and my agent knows, I just like to do things that are interesting to me. I mean, it, it goes just to show, like, whenever you see somebody that is having fun, you can tell by what they put out, right? You never want to go to, if you had to get a shot, right? If you got to get a shot or you got to have, you know, your teeth worked on by the dentist, you don't want to go to the guy that's consistently frowning or just is trying to yeah, do anything right. but his job. You want to go to the dude that's smiling, that's having a good time, that can find the good in the shittiest of situations, right? And there was something you hit on when you talked about where you, you were talking, you were just chasing the job or you're just, you know, trying to get work, you're trying to do this. I never thought about it that way. Cause when I think about it, I think of like, oh man, you guys got to work with, you know, Robin Williams, you got to work with, you know, Chuck, sure. you got to do all of this crazy stuff. So as an outsider looking in, right? I'm, I'm thinking it's just a fascinating world, right? And then I take a step back when you said what you said, right? So. I cook for a living. Um, it is a weird job most days. It's a fun job some days, and but it's always different and it's always rewarding when you get that one person that comes up and says, you know what, that was the best meal I've ever had in my life. Or we were expecting one thing. You guys just blew it off the map for us. And it goes up to something that I heard my, my kids talk about. I'm pretty sure you've heard it too with your kids when their friends have come over. You know, your kids might say, uh, or, or their your your kids' friends might say, "Oh man, your dad worked on this." My my kids' friends will come over and say, "Your dad is a great cook," and it's just like, well, "Yeah, that's that's what he does." <laughs> he's, you know, he's he, he draws or he cooks. He does something really well, and they're just not used to it. So I I never thought about it that way until you said what you said, and I think it's a brilliant way to really look at what you do and what people do, and you're just like man, it's just day-to-day -day living for me type of thing. I'm glad, you know, people enjoy it. I have a lot of fun doing it because I can always find something positive or something good about what I do. Um, and I don't think that's highlighted enough in anybody's career, you know? So um, it's really nice to hear something like that is what I'm getting at, Chris. Yeah, cool. Um, so as we start to wind down here, even though I said that again for the second time. Um, right. I want, <laughs> so I want, I want to know, man, out of all of the projects you've really, really worked on, you know, from doing just the animation to now you're directing, right? Um, one, did you think that you would take this route as far as from storyboarding and artist and, and all of the CGI stuff that you've done, and now you're taking a different look or a different view at how the sausage is made, you know, to an extent? I mean, did you think you'd end up as a director? No, no, gosh. I was, uh, even when I was at CalArts and, and the world had kind of cracked open, I was thinking, well, I just want to be that guy that people think about when they have a project starting up, you know, <laughs> they'll hire. So it's, uh, it's it, you know, so I've exceeded, you know, those expectations, which, which you know, is, is great. You know, I feel like anything after that is just gravy. But, um, 
gosh, I think like following the work, you know, having a good 10 years as an animator and a director at Disney Feature Animation, you know, was brilliant. And, and then taking that experience into TV on Kim Possible and giving Great it that. Job. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, and Mark and Bob were the two creators of that show and they brought me on as a, a co-producer, supervising director. And they just let me put my own stamp on, on it. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and just bringing that feature animation, uh, you know, experience to limited animation, you mm -hmm. know, like to, to uh, you know, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but there, you know, animation is based on change of shape and uh, sort of reversing the curve and the line of action. And so if you can bake that into your poses in the storyboard, like no matter if of an A, level, a B or C level animator gets that shot at the subcontracting studio, it's going to be strong and look like something. Yeah. So, you know, that's, um, so I, so that was very gratifying because then that show connected with a lot of people, but um, you know, I don't know. There's been so many because my biggest, my first big supervising job in CGI was on Mighty Joe Young mm -hmm. and the movie didn't do great in terms of box office, but I think in terms of like working with the crew and the, you know, the difficulties everybody was having with that film. And, and ultimately the final result is amazing. And, and everybody's relationships came out really strong at the other end. That was a super positive one. It was a touching movie too. I'm a, I'm a huge, 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 huge King Kong fan, even though Joe and Kong are completely different. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. There is something about, I, I cannot wait for Godzilla versus King. I cannot wait. Yeah, me too. I'm just reading King. something about some early reviews and things. Oh, I, I am so excited. Like, I want to see this monkey beat the shit out of this lizard. Yeah. There's just one for mammals and zero for, you know, reptilians, <laughs> right? So yeah, got, I'm, I have I'm a, so excited. I have a great anecdote for you from Mighty Joe Young. I don't know how close you remember the movie, but there's a scene where he's in the amusement park at the end and he comes out of the fun house mm -hmm. and I uh, can see all of his reflections all around him. It was a pretty brilliant CGI shot. Anyway, Joe comes walking out, you know, on his knuckles and everyone's screaming and running and pauses, looks left and looks right. Then he throws his head down for a little look and then he starts walking forward again. And we were in dailies and, uh, you know, the editor's like, what the hell is he looking down for? And they said, I don't know, I guess he's just figuring out, you know, wants to make sure he's not stepping into a hole or something. He's got <laughs> solid ground ahead of him. And, uh, and I don't know if that satisfied him or not. I said, look, we've been, you know, 90% of the movie was, was a man, you know, wearing a suit, an actor wearing a, a suit. And he was brilliant. Uh, and so our job really as animators was to look at that footage, identify how he moved, what he did to mimic a gorilla. Because, mm. um, you know, humans have very little upper body strength and more lower body strength. Gorillas, it's the opposite. Yeah. So he's really mimicking gorilla poses, but using his legs. So we had to sort of key into that. And there's things he did with his hands and his feet. So anyway, I, uh, I said, look, we've been looking at John's behaviors from the, re the rest of the film. And Joe oftentimes just puts his head down. You know, when he, he stops walking, he'll put his head down and he'll look around. Then he puts his head down again and he starts walking off. And he goes, ah, oh, that's John looking for his mark through the mask. I'm trying to cut all those out of the film. That is 
Fantastic. I'm so glad you told me that story because I don't th- I've seen that movie maybe three or four times in my life. And it's something I'm gonna have to go back and watch it with my son. <laughs> it's, it's it's shit. I'm 32 this year, I think. Yeah, I'm 32 this year. I think the last time I saw it, man, maybe in my tw- early 20s, 2021. I might, I might have saw it when my wife and I, you know, first got out to Washington, we, we started going to FYE and we just get any movie we could because it was before my son was born. So, you know, we were trying to save all the money we could back then. So we did everything in-house. We were watching TV, cartoons, all that type of stuff. I was watching cartoons because she can't stand cartoons. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> no, they think so. I, I've tried so many times to get her into it. And she always like looks at me like side eye looks and she's like, Pfft. we like features or short cartoons or any cartoon any cartoons i've tried so many times i i I just i just look at him like who hurt you as a child like you don't feel you don't feel like a little child or you don't feel happy when you see she's like no and then (laughs) you watch the stuff she watches and some of the most depressing stuff like she'll watch these um it's not depressing it's it's like doctor shows and stuff like that which i can't do because it i have a very sensitive stomach so i see you know even though i know it's fake i see somebody's brain pulsating because it's somebody getting operated on i just want to vomit it's just it's like (laughs) it's just not for me so you know everybody's got their quirks everybody's got what they're into but mighty joe young is something we're gonna have to revisit because like i said that is a fantastic movie that does not get i think if people looked at that movie now you'd probably have a bigger reception for it than you did back then which makes no sense really because if you look at the movies that were coming out back then very hit or miss you don't have like boys and girls you don't have the level and the caliber of movies that we have now 15 yeah. years ago 10 years ago it the marvel the marvel machine just really turned a switch up when they made iron man and then they started making yeah you know so everything is kind of flipped on its head i mean even tv back in the day nobody gave a shit about tv it was all feature films you know you had very few shows uh he's amazing then. now it, it, it's it's like every show you turn on is like soprano level quality you're just yeah. How the hell, like Breaking Bad, there's no way in hell that a Breaking Bad gets made 20 years ago. There's just even the visual effects. You look at Game of Thrones, you're like, that's like a, that's a movie every week. Yes. I mean, you know? and, and, the, and then you look at their budget and then you're like, oh yeah, this is, this well, is. That, that, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, but thank, thank you for that, Mighty Joe. You know, um, it was one of the things, you know, I'm, we, I, I mentioned the, um, a little not it's not a blooper really but the things we sort of have to you know kind of put into work i'm sorry i'm fumbling over this tra- trying to find a transition into this next <laughs> behind the scenes bit that i just gave you um in x-men 2 um when we saw the first rough cut of uh of nightcrawler trying to kill the president and it was just like a guy on wires and half the walls aren't there it was great yeah. We just knew it was going to be great. But, you know, there's a scene in the Oval Office um, where Nightcrawler's just appearing and disappearing, yeah. and he's just kicking the hell out of all these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there was a scene where Nightcrawler kicks somebody, but then somebody behind that guy all of a sudden reacted like he got punched. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't notice it, you know, in the in we in just the, the the cacophony of noise and violence. But I'm like, well, he's not moving for any reason. And and Brian was very concerned that that you know the characters be taken seriously and we not do anything slapsticky or goofy with them. But 
we decided to have Nightcrawler's tail come yeah. by and slap that guy in the face. <laughs> sending him going and man it totally sells it. It, it that that character alone it, when we talk about x-men my favorite x-men of all time is colossus i don't know what it is about him but anytime i saw him on a cartoon or anytime i saw him on a comic book panel there was just something that drew me to colossus and a second a very second close character was nightcrawler one of the most if not the most underrated character in the entire x-men universe when i saw him coming up, like I remember going to see this movie in the theaters and then every time he was on I'm like oh my god it's night I I cannot yeah, I know right I cannot believe he is on the big screen right now like I like I was treating it like I had stake in the game Chris I was just like oh my god he's here he's here. like all, like how are you guys not up out of your chair the only thing that I really 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 wanted to see but you know when you were talking about Brian I want to make sure it was very very real um I wanted to see the BAMF. I wanted to see the BAM. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to see that so bad. And I was hoping beyond hope that it might be in a bloopers reel or something like that. When you see the director's cut back then, I was just super deep into the director's cut editions on all of, all the stuff. Um, and that was one thing that I was like, Oh man, they didn't even, they didn't even acknowledge it. I was like, ah, I feel like it would have been such a, just a, like a tip to the cap to the, to the oh. crew fans. If we could have got that. Well, wait, what he, well, he did do the BAMP effect. So what were you looking for specifically? You I just, just want, want to have it mentioned or? I just want, I just want to see it pop up like in the comic books, just like, like you just see it. Cause you, like whenever I see Nightcrawler, uh, that's the second thing. It's like when you think about um, Adam West's Batman, you think of Bang Pow, you know, all oh, that. Oh, sure, stuff, sure. Right. So I just wanted to see it like, like if it was a comic book panel. Like the, the Roadrunner's zip. Yeah. It, goes, <laughs> <laughs> it, it would make no sense whatsoever in the movie, but I was like, that's, that's just one thing that i was like oh man it would it would just be like for me it would have been like like i said the cherry on the top of the sunday even though sure cherries okay on. i have one one i had a tiny contribution to the bamp effect in the movie yeah is that uh when when um brian would pitch the bamp effect and i wasn't in these meetings but the guys clearly weren't um given him what he was looking for but they said he would describe this very complicated thing that that like that crawler appears and so it sort of pushes all the dirt and the dust that's in the air out. And then he's got his own little smoky thing going on. And essentially he was describing this very simple eight frame effect in like two or three paragraphs. Yeah. So what they were giving him back was like ridiculously complicated because they were trying to you know interpret what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And so I was asked to take a look at it. And so the only advice I gave them was, oh, do this in three frames, do this in eight, and then let, let all the smoky stuff linger for another two or three seconds, and you'll totally be good. <laughs> um, so I was just bringing, again, that feature animation timing to what they'd already worked out, and then it, it got approved, and I never went to another meeting on the BAMP effect again. <laughs> well, but it just, and that's for me, reading those comics over all those years, it goes, boom, you go, BAMP, like that. I just knew what the timing should be in my head, and I saw this brilliant work that they showed me, and it was like, Oh, I get it while he's while it's not resonating with Brian because it's not resonating with me for the same reason. It, it's always fun. Like whenever they that's one thing I, I think DC is missing in their movies. And you kind of see. Have you seen Snyder's cut for Justice League? I yet? did. Yeah, I watched it the other day. Phenomenal movie. The only the only and this is me just bitching to bitch i never review and rate anything because i can't do what you guys do for a living it's just not fair that'd be like you coming into my kitchen and be like oh man you don't know how to use <laughs> right? 
And I just think it's, I think it's a shitty way to really look at something that's supposed to be entertaining. And I am the easiest person to please really when it comes to movies or cartoons, make me laugh, make me feel something for these characters. I'm never going to go out and outwardly shit on something because I just, like I said, I just don't think there's a place for it. I think it's point. Well, you go into a wanting to believe it. You yeah, like want to have a good time. It's like the movie theaters. And that's what sucked so much about COVID other than, you know, this first world problems at this point, but, you know, going to see movies in an actual movie theater with my son was one of my favorite things I got to do. Um, as you know, as the years have gotten on and he's gotten older and he's actually, you know, able to sit through an entire movie. Um, it's one of those things like I absolutely loved, you know, going to do. Um, and just if you can suspend disbelief for two hours, if you can get my attention for two hours, whether it be a cartoon, a movie, you know, insert whatever here. I'm going to love the movie regardless I, if, the, if it failed halfway through it or it failed the ending. It just didn't stick the landing you still got my money and you still got my approval. I might never watch it again, but I was still entertained for some portion of that movie. Um, and it was just, it was just one of those things. Like, I, like, I, like I said, I absolutely loved just the whole process. If you can do that, man, you're a fan. I'm a fan of yours for life. And uh, you know, to segue towards the end, man, that's what you've done your whole career, man. It's from, from <laughs> hit after hit for me, right? I've been entertained. I've been, you know, entranced. I've been scared. I've laughed. I've hated a character that you've worked on because he was just a rotten person, right? Or a rotten rat or a, just a dingbat, you know? It was just all of these crazy things um, that, that you've done as, as an animator, now as a director. Um, you know, pretty much what I'm getting at, Chris, is thank you for your contribution. <laughs> to, well, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it, man. And I, I hope you've had as much fun talking to me as I've had to you. Um, and the last thing we really got to touch on is you are teaching a storyboard class, man. You want to talk about that a little bit so the fans can know where to go, because I'm pretty sure we're going to try to sign up as many people as possible for your class. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I've, I've always thought like directing is half teaching because you get people at different levels. Some coming right out of school. And I've had people mention to me that, that they thought I'd make a good teacher. So just recently, I've been asked by a couple uh, friends and former friends and colleagues, current friends, former <laughs> colleagues, Disney Feature Animation, uh, Dave Proxima and uh, Dave Kuhn, to be a part of their CAD animation school. And I'm going to teach us uh, TV uh, animation for TV storyboarding. Okay. So again, kind of what I touched on for Kim Possible, mm -hmm. kind of wanna, I want to bring those feature animation skills and apply them in a very, you know, uh, you know, apply them toward more limited animation because mm -hmm. the world has too much stiff animation in it. Yes. <laughs> you know, because some of the great stuff that uh, you move, so that's with Cat Animation, it's online, it's a summer course. And I know that we're, um, we're looking at portfolios now and uh, it's gonna be limited to the number of students. So if anybody's interested, check, on, check it out. It's cat-animation.com. And you guys will not be disappointed. All you got to do is just Google Chris Bailey and then you can find out so much more about his information and a whole bunch of reasons on why you should sign up for this course. Chris, like I said, it has been fun for me talking. Hopefully, like I said, hopefully you had a good time. Um, no, I love it, Julian. You're great. I love looking at uh, your set behind your room too. That's awesome. Or thank set you. behind yourself. <laughs> your room behind yourself. See, I, man, I hope you cleaned up some of the stuff. I'm just tripping all over myself. Absolutely like, not, Chris. This is all <laughs> people are going to see the way my brain jumps from track to track. And if you've it's seen any fun. of my episodes, they're going to be like, holy shit, this guy is like the same as the host. He's 
he's here, he's here, but he comes back to the point and then he goes back over here. And it's just, like I said, it makes for a fun conversation because you really get to see, I don't like doing yes and no interviews because I don't think it's fun. You guys get asked the same questions on a consistent basis. And it's like going to that dentist that just does not like his job, right? He's like, ah, fuck, I gotta do this again. Here we go. He's going to ask me about basil. He's going to ask me about this. One thing real quick though, is that the way my mind jumps around, I may stop having a conversation with somebody but my brain will keep working on it. So two <laughs> weeks later, like with my wife, I'll just say the next sentence in that conversation. And she'll be like, what? Where did that come from? I was like, oh, well, you know, we were talking about this thing. That was weeks ago. I've done it my whole life. I do it with everybody in my life. <laughs> well, I got it. I'll, I'll end it with this story real quick and then make it a quick one. Okay, uh, very so, good. So this, this, I'm so glad you brought this up because I just found out I do the same exact thing and I don't realize it. Right. So I'm at work the other day and my sous chef, Josie and my chef, Chris, um, they were talking about something and we were talking about a dish and then 20 minutes goes by and it's still in here in my head. Cause I'm, <laughs> I have to physically see something in order for me to get it. Like I, I, and I got to ask why we do it. And, and I always have to preface it with like, if I ask you why it's not because I'm questioning your authority, it's because I need to physically know why we do. So why do we reduce this by half instead of a quarter? If I know the why I retain it. And that way, when somebody goes and asks me down the road, because you're always supposed to train your replacement. That's why you're going to be a fantastic teacher with a storyboard class. And you've always got to train your replacement. And so it goes back and we were talking about something and then it was still going on in my head. They had already went and lived their life for 20, 30 minutes. They had multiple conversations with a whole bunch of different people at this point, And they were just going on about their life. And then I come up like I was just talking to them. I'm like, hey, man, what if we did this? And they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, that thing, <laughs> we, were, that thing we were just discussing. And they're like, yeah, that was like an hour and a half, two hours ago. And I'm like, really? It felt like 20 minutes. Are you sure it was that long? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and they start laughing. Like you have this habit of like starting a conversation in mid sentence. Like we were just physically talking, <laughs> but we left that conversation a long time ago. So I'm so glad there's more people like me out there, Chris. Um, like I said, Excellent. man, it's been fun. Um, like I said, thank you for everything you did, man. I really appreciate it. Um, and this goes out to all the fans, man. Meet your heroes. Cause they're fantastic. He's been Chris. I've been Julian. This has been the what's in my head podcast. Thank you so much. And I'll see you guys later. Thanks again for checking out the What's In My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.